today we're continuing in our series, Ruth, A Redemption Story, and today's message is entitled, Grace Abounds. And I want to mention as we begin that one of the resources I've been using to study, I just want to mention it to you, so if, if you're interested in picking one up, you could. Uh, it's a study guide, actually, written by author Jared Wilson, uh, and it's entitled, Ruth, Redemption for the Broken, and it's part of the Gospel-Centered Life in the Bible series. You can buy it on Amazon for about $16, Um, and it's really, really nice because it's got sections to read, discussion questions, um, and even leaders' notes. So if you are looking for something, a resource for a Bible study, maybe a personal Bible study or a group Bible study, maybe a couple of you want to get together and do a little study together, uh, this is a really excellent resource. If your grace group is looking for a book to go through, a great resource, Um, and I've been using it as one of the resources for my studies for this series, even though it's a study guide, I've found even the discussion questions have been actually really helpful as I've tried to think through the text as you know I'm studying each week in, in this series. So uh, they kind of just helped me think a little bit outside of maybe where my thoughts are with the text. Um, so definitely recommend that book. Uh, we are in chapter two of the book of Ruth, and this chapter is full of God's amazing provision of his grace. Act 1 of the story of Ruth was told in chapter 1 and tells of a rather bleak time. Ruth and Naomi had lost everything. Naomi and her family had moved to Moab, an enemy nation, to escape the famine that had gripped Israel, including their hometown of Bethlehem. During during the 10 years that they sojourned in Moab, uh, Naomi lost her husband and her two sons. Those sons had taken Moabite wives, one of whom was Ruth. Naomi was without any means of supporting herself. She was husbandless, childless. She was destitute. She was without options. And Ruth could have remained in Moab. She could have found herself a husband. She could have stayed with her family. Yet she abandoned all she knew, and she clung to Naomi. They returned to Bethlehem after Naomi had heard that the famine was over. There was bread again. So now we pick up the story, Act 2. What does the future look like for Ruth and Naomi? Today we're going to look at three main ideas, providence, favor, and hope. As we look at providence, we're going to just look at the first seven verses. We are indeed covering the whole chapter of chapter 2 this morning. So um, rather than read it all at the beginning, we're going to read it section by section. So we will begin uh, just with the first seven verses here in Ruth 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, uh, his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, 
Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So what is providence? Providence is God's sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. Sovereignty is God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. God purposes the circumstances and events of our lives, and his purposes, his plans, are for our good. Romans 8.28, a very familiar passage, says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God is no mere spectator. He's not distant and beyond cheering us on, wishing us well as we endeavor to live rightly. As the hymn says, this is our Father's world. The affairs of men and nations are in the hands of a sovereign God who is both wise and good. God's providence shows that he is for us. All that he purposes comes to be and he cannot be thwarted as the scriptures tell us. And providence is linked directly to a very similar word in the English language, provision. God provides. He provides for his people. And in Genesis 22, we find the first use of the word provide. Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, we may be familiar with this story. It's a really common Sunday school lesson. A couple of things typically stand out to us. Isaac, the son of promise, is submissive to his father, even to the point of laying down on the woodpile I'm sure he understood what was happening to some degree, though he probably was a bit confused, but hey, why am I being laid down on this pile of wood? Abraham, he's up in years. He's submissive to the Lord, and he's willing to sacrifice it all, including his beloved son. But One thing has been standing out to me lately as I've been reading uh, through this and thinking through it uh, is in verse 8. When Abraham says that God will provide for himself a lamb. Abraham spoke here of Jehovah Jireh. The name of God that meant that God will provide. It's interesting to me how it's worded that God would provide for himself an offering. And I believe what we're seeing here is that this is looking forward to the lamb. Not just a lamb, the lamb, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate provision for our greatest need. Abraham, by faith, was looking towards the promise. And we are seeing that God always provides for his people. Yes, for our physical needs, for our emotional needs, but mostly for our greatest need, which is salvation. The need is there. This need is there because of the debt that we owe to God. Abraham is showing that this greatest need, a sacrifice to pay for our sin, 
the debt that we owed would be paid by God to God on our behalf. Back to Ruth. Verse 1 gives us a brief introduction to Boaz. We'll learn more about him as the story unfolds. One thing to note here, though, is that he is called a worthy man. This phrase can mean a variety of things. It can mean that he was a war hero, that he was a capable man, that he was a wealthy man. This word will also be used to describe Ruth in the very next chapter. Boaz doesn't appear to be a warrior, but we don't really know his, his story. But he is capable, and he is wealthy. He is also noble, a man of virtue. And we'll see more of that as we go on. But I want to mention, um, as we move forward in the text, we are not merely looking for godly characteristics to emulate here. We're not looking at these people just as models for us to live good lives. There were certainly some things to take note of. There's certainly some things to pay attention to. Um, Ruth and Boaz are amazing models of godly character. They, they are. But we're not just looking at Boaz. We're looking through Boaz. When we look at Boaz, we see many godly traits to imitate. But when we look through Boaz, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we go, I want you to keep that in mind. We see in verses 2 and 3, God's provision for the needy and God's providence in the life of Ruth. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Ruth says to Naomi that she's going to the field. She's going to glean. And maybe somebody would show her favor. Gleaning was the provision in the Mosaic law given so that those who were the poorest of the poor, those who were destitute, could eke out some kind of meager existence. It was not going to be plenty. It was not going to be a, uh, a great way to make it. You're not going to get enough to last you more than just through that day. The law instructed harvesters to ignore the parts of the crop that fell to the ground or the solitary stalks at the edges of the field. Gleaning was hard work with very little results, but it was a provision so that those who were destitute could survive. It was specifically for the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the sojourner. Let's look at where that uh, is found in the law. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And then in Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law. Leviticus is the telling of the law, and Deuteronomy is the reminder to Israel before they enter into the promised land. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. 
It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, it's interesting because I think we around this area can kind of get a mental picture of what this might look like. Uh, right now, uh, you see some of the cornfields are harvested already and some are not. But if you look at some of the ones that have been harvested, every now and then towards the edge, you'll see some solitary stalks uh, still, still up. Now, imagine if after our worship gathering this morning, we all went out, walked around the fields and picked up what little amount of corn we could find on the ground. Probably not enough to sustain us very long, right? We might be fortunate if we get one meal out of it per person. Maybe. But it's going to be hard work, right? Having to go through and pick that by hand. But it is a provision nonetheless. Now, one thing to consider as we think about this, it's likely that Israel failed to follow these commands along with the rest of the law. Considering the pattern of Israel at the time of the judges, the time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I I think it's pretty easy to think that they likely were forgetting this part of the law, ignoring this part of the law. As well, Israel's continued pattern to fail to keep the commandments throughout her history, it's likely that there were few landowners who would have followed this command. Nevertheless, Ruth looks to the provision that God had established with the commands on gleaning, and she hopes to find someone who will show her favor. Verse 3 again, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. It seems to indicate that uh, perhaps there was this big field, and it was sectioned up to various landowners. So she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. And I want to key in on this phrase, and she happened to come to the part of the field. Literally, the Hebrew reads, and her chance chanced upon the allotted portion of the field of Boaz. Perhaps a more modern rendering would be, as her luck would have it. Now, the narrator doesn't believe in luck or chance, but in the providence of God. And scripture tells us that God is in control, even of the roll of the dice, and that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing. What is the writer saying then? The narrator wants us to pay attention to all of the amazing provision that is coming Ruth and Naomi's way. So he puts this in there to draw our attention to the seemingly impossible way that all of this comes together. Daniel Block, a commentator, writes, In reality, he, the narrator, is screaming, See the hand of God at work here. The same hand that had sent the famine and later provided food is the hand that had brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem precisely at the beginning of the harvest and has now guided Ruth to the portion of the field belonging specifically to Boaz. This phrase, and she happened, is a wink and nod. All of this has been ordered under the sovereign providence of God. In his providence, he has led Ruth to Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech, and this will be important. We see in the following verses that Boaz is concerned about this young woman. He asks, whose young woman is this? His concern is for her protection and care. He knows that if she is gleaning, she is likely alone and unprotected. Throughout the story, we see in his care and Naomi's warning at the very end of this chapter that women who gleaned likely faced all sorts of trouble. 
perhaps even violence or sexual assault. And Boaz is exhibiting godly character in his desire to protect her. God, in his providence, has brought Naomi to Ruth. Ruth with Naomi to Bethlehem. And now, Ruth to Boaz. Let's look at favor. We turn our attention to the favor that Boaz and ultimately God shows to Ruth. And we see this in verses 8 through 16. So let's read that. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime... Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also put some put out, uh, sorry, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. The Bible is full of needy people. And when we approach the scriptures uh, just in a way to turn them into heroes, people to emulate, we sometimes miss the pictures and stories of grace that their individual lives tell us. The threads of redemption are woven throughout the larger story of redemption through the people of the scriptures. Ruth is in desperate need. And this echoes our need as well. We are needy people. And we have now received unmerited favor from God through his son. Boaz has taken notice of Ruth and he immediately speaks with her. He tells her to glean only in his field. And among the women gleaning there, he tells her she'll be protected in his field. He tells her to drink of the water drawn by the young men. This is incredible, and it's something that I think if we don't know the context, we're likely going to miss just how amazing it is. You see, it's one thing to follow the command. All Boaz would have to do in this moment is not stop her from gleaning, and he would be following the law. That's the letter. Boaz, however, goes above and beyond. He invites her to glean among his people. He protects her from harm and even offers her water to drink. In that society, normally, foreigners would draw water for Israelites and women would draw water for men. She is invited to drink of the water drawn by Israelite men. Boaz goes above and beyond what the law commanded. He is generous and caring. And Ruth is blown away by this generosity. 
Ruth bows before Boaz, thanking him for his kindness and favor. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. And Boaz answered, all that you have done from your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been, been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. A few things to note here. Ruth did not expect this favor. She was not expecting this much generosity. She's blown away by it. But Boaz has heard of what Ruth has done for Naomi. He desires for her to be rewarded for her kindness to her mother-in-law, her kindness to his family. He prays that the Lord would repay her and reward her because she has sought refuge under God's wings. Ruth is full of faith, and this faith has caused her to act in love and generosity, kindness, compassion towards Naomi. She is willing to labor for both their needs. And she wonders at the provision of God. And Boaz takes notice of her. Ruth has a wonderful reaction to the favor of God, to the grace of God. And it's so important for us to get these dynamics straight, the relationship between faith and works and the distinction between gospel and law. As Jared Wilson puts it, if we don't keep them straight... We end up thinking screwy things and doing screwy things. If we're not clear about the gospel, we can even end up in a shallow, performance-driven, I don't know, amalgamation of what the gospel is. Where we expect grace or favor based on what we do. We expect God's uh, face to shine upon us. We expect good results or credit for our hard work. Maybe we think that God will show us favor if we work really hard and practice these spiritual disciplines. If we keep it all lined up just so. If we're faithful enough. I do want to remind you that God isn't opposed to working. But he is opposed to earning. We don't work or earn his favor or his love. We work because we have his favor and love. So if we are to take notice of Ruth's example here, let it be that her faith is genuinely displayed through humility and love and kindness. She trusted God and under his wings took refuge. And this imagery of taking shelter under the wings of God is really interesting. It's a beautiful picture. It describes how baby chicks seek shelter under the wings of their mother. Again, Jehovah Jireh. God, our provider. In doing so, baby chicks seek rest, protection, and nourishment. It must have been through this very story of his great-grandmother that David heard this phrase. He uses it multiple times throughout the Psalms. This imagery of seeking refuge under the wings of God. And even Jesus, a descendant of Ruth, As he looked over Jerusalem, said, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Ruth's amazement at the favor of Boaz is really amazement at the favor of God. This word favor carries the idea of grace. Kind of like the Old Testament word for grace. 
despite her foreignness, despite her unworthiness, God has shown incredible grace towards her. Not because she worked really hard or sacrificed so much, but because of her faith. Excuse me, her faith. Her hard work and her love for Naomi was born out of faith. It was the fruit of her faith. We can work. We should work. We should care for our families and work to provide. But all the while know that God's grace is really just that. It's grace. It's unmerited favor. God's goodness given freely. His grace is neither started nor sustained by your work. Grace isn't given when you become worthy of it. Grace is grace because it's for the unworthy, you and I. Jared Wilson writes this, Grace comes out of the overflow of his love, out of his care and concern, out of the very fact that Jesus Christ is the most worthy man who ever existed. And that, in fact, before you ever existed to work or not work, the preexistent Son of God determined that you'd be noticed, rewarded, and hidden under his wings. But before you were ever able to draw a single breath, he determined to shower his grace upon you. Before you were ever able to do a single solitary thing for God, he decided to show his love and kindness towards you. The goodness of God continues to abound. We see in the next few verses, beginning in verse 14, that Boaz invites Ruth to his table for a meal. He invites her to partake of the bread and the wine. This is another example of the above and beyond, the abundance of grace here. It's astonishing that Boaz invites Ruth to the table here. She is a single woman, and he is a man. She is poor, and he is rich. She is a Moabite, and he an Israelite. It brings to mind the times that Jesus ate with sinners. Tax collectors, thieves, prostitutes. Brings to mind you and I. We were poor. Jesus is rich. And he invited us to the table. Of course we were undeserving. But he invited us anyways. Because his love and his mercy and his grace is unmerited. We can't earn it. We can't clean ourselves up enough to deserve to be at the table. But in his kindness, we're drawn, we're beckoned and invited to the table freely. Jesus at the Last Supper told his followers that the bread and wine show his death for the forgiveness of sin and that one day we will feast again together. It speaks of grace and it speaks a better word than earning ever could. Jesus freely, extravagantly offers himself to us. He offers us himself. Boaz, a type and shadow of Christ, the kinsman redeemer, is offering bread and wine. He's offering favor to Ruth. It's above and beyond. It's abundant grace. It's abundant because Boaz is not just offering a few bites at the table. Ruth eats until she is satisfied, and she even has leftovers. And I love that scripture saw, uh, the Holy Spirit saw fit to inform the writer of this to leave that part in. She has to ask for a to-go box. 
And that's just how grace is. It's abundant. It's lavish. Then Boaz does even more. He tells his young men, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So not only can she glean, but let her glean from the sheaves. Pulling from the bundles of already harvested grain. This was the good stuff. In a modern version of this, he's saying, let Ruth go up to the harvested, you know, I don't know how these big machines work, but hopefully when it's off and not churning and all that stuff, let her go up to it and grab some handfuls of the good stuff. Don't make her grab it from the ground. Don't make her grab the scraps. Let her grab the harvested grain. Let her get the good stuff. This isn't what the law commanded. Ruth and Naomi's situation is turning around drastically just in the course of one day. She went from gleaning, picking up scraps in the fields in the morning, looking for a favorable landowner, hoping to find favor, a good man who wouldn't harm her. To finding someone who will not only let her glean, but is protecting her, feeding her, and sending her home with extra. And not just extra, a lot extra. Actually, down in verse 17, it says, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. This is the equivalence of 30 pounds of grain. Gleaners would have been fortunate to collect a meager amount of grain, perhaps enough for one person for one meal. Paid harvesters would bring home approximately one liter of grain, enough to feed their family. Ruth brings home enough to sustain her and Naomi for weeks incredible so Boaz is not stingy with his gifts they're not going to starve our heavenly father is not stingy with his gifts he is abounding in grace and he satisfies the soul he's the giver of all good things second corinthians 9 8 says and god is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I think sometimes we approach the grace of God, we approach the gifts of God, the goodness of God, almost like we're gleaning. Like maybe I'll get enough just to make it through this moment. He is lavishing it upon us. He gives freely and abundantly. He satisfies the soul. Jesus is the living water and all who drink will never be thirsty. If you eat the bread of his flesh and the wine of his blood, that is to believe in Christ's death and resurrection, you will never die. You'll have eternal life. John Calvin said, in short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. The gospel is the table that always satisfies and gives us above and beyond what we could ever dare dream of. The gospel abounds in grace. God's grace is good. Amen? Amen. 
As Ruth received the favor of God through Boaz, so too we have received the favor of God through Christ his son. As Ruth dwells on the favor she has received, any fear that she had begins to fade. And it's beginning to be replaced with hope. Let's read about hope in these last few verses of chapter 2, starting in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, about 30 pounds. And she took it up and went into the city. She carried that all the way back. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers. And Ruth the, Mo- Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, Her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young, men, young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This last point will be brief. I just want to draw your attention to the hope we begin to see here in these last few verses. Man, I really wish that I could see Naomi's face when Ruth walked in. 30 pounds of grain and a to-go box of a good meal. She asks Ruth, where did you glean today? She then prays a blessing on the man whose field it was. In chapter 1, I mentioned that like Job, Naomi ascribed her suffering to the sovereignty of God. Here she ascribes their blessing to the sovereignty of God. The Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the Lord, Job said. And I think that's similar to the heart's cry of Naomi here. Her bitterness is turning to rejoicing. The Lord has not forsaken them. After all, he has shown once again his hased, his faithful, loving kindness here through the actions of Boaz. Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz is a redeemer. This word translated redeemer means a kinsman redeemer, a close relative who is able to come to the aid of a family member. (coughs) Excuse me. This will be further developed in chapter 3, which we're going to look at next week. But our passage ends. uh, Naomi said, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Another interesting, just brief notion, mention here of providence. They came at the right time. They came at the harvest time. It's another way that God worked all of this together. But Naomi's bitterness and her bleak outlook is beginning to turn to hope. And Ruth is filled with hope. Why? Because they have tasted and seen the goodness of God again. And this is true of us as well. When we taste and see that the Lord is good, the first time and hopefully time and time again, when we hear of this wonderful Redeemer, Jesus, who saves us not only from sin, but from our hopelessness, bringing us into his family, giving us his righteousness, we're filled with hope. Hope is confidence. It's assurance in God. It is built on the foundation of faith. It is not wishful thinking like the modern notion of hope. It is a reality and not just a feeling. That God is faithful to his promises. 
Believer, God is faithful to the promises of the gospel. And this second chapter of Ruth reassures us of that. In closing, let's just look briefly at a summary of the gospel in Ruth in this chapter. God's favor, His grace, fuels our hope. And it's not like paying $4 at the pump type of fuel, where you feel like really let down afterwards. But like supercharged rocket fuel that was paid for by God through Jesus Christ and given freely to us. This grace-fueled hope gives us confidence even in the day of trouble. That we can stand on His promises. Even though we haven't been faithful, He is faithful and He remains faithful. Though we often look to our own sufficiency, He is more than sufficient. He will love us not only to the end, but through all eternity. Your names are not rubber stamped on his hand. They're graven on his hand. He hasn't promised to love you till you maybe one day mess up and then he can just wash his hands of it. He's loving you all the way through all eternity. We, like Ruth and Naomi, were needy. But God has provided through his son all that we could ever need and hope for. Everything that we have comes from him. Our greatest need, God provided for a substitution for our sin. The Bible tells us that we were dead in sin, slaves to sin, alienated from God, and unable to follow or obey his commands. We were under his wrath and living in the kingdom of darkness. We were very, very needy, but God provided Just as Isaac asked his father Abraham, where was the offering? We can be assured by Abraham's word that God will and now has provided for himself the lamb. He has provided Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, our redeemer, was able and willing to redeem us. And that's going to be something important that we see next week in Ruth 3. Able and willing. Not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. He paid the debt we owed and purchased us as his bride. We see how God's favor goes above and beyond what we could ever have dared to dream about. He is not stingy in his provision nor in his love. He is abounding in love. And the law could not do what the gospel of grace has done and now continues to do in us. Boaz typifies this for us. The law said Ruth could glean among the outskirts of the field, picking up among the scraps. Boaz said, you can go with my people in the middle of the field, pick from the harvest, the best of the best. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry of death, the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." What he's saying is simply, the law is good, but the gospel is better. What the law could not do, Jesus has done. God, through Jesus, has provided all that we need. He has saved us. 
And not only that, he's gone above and beyond. He has poured out his abounding, overflowing, all-satisfying grace. So brothers and sisters, drink deeply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for that grace that is so abundant. It, It never runs out. You give and you give and you give. Father, we can't even begin to imagine. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around just how incredible it really is. But you give this to us freely because you love us. An unconditional, unmerited love. So, Father, we just humbly thank you for that. We praise you for that this morning, Father. Lord, thank you for this picture of your love and kindness, your hesed, your faithfulness, and your grace in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Lord, thanks for giving this to us. That we might just see a taste of the incredible love that you have for us. Thank you for providing all that we need in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.